Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. Developing a global mindset is an important part of educating young people in our interconnected world. An essential part of this process is to travel and learn in different contexts, and this is exactly what Semester at Sea does. University students spend one semester taking their courses on a ship while traveling to 10 different countries on three continents. Their classes take on a new life as the courses are embedded into the context of the countries that they are visiting. My guest in this episode discusses how this program works and the impact it has on both the students and their teachers. Scott Marshall is the president and CEO of the Institute of Shipboard Education, a nonprofit organization that administers the Semester at Sea Study Abroad program. With a background in business and education, Scott has experience in several aspects of this program and its aim to develop global engagement. He also taught students on the ship prior to becoming CEO and is a passionate traveler himself, having visited more than 80 countries. Thank you so much, Scott, for joining me. Kinga, it's such a pleasure to be here with you. Well, this is certainly a very interesting experience for any university student. I mean, traveling around the world and experiencing 10 different countries and three different continents. I mean, it just sounds like an absolute dream. but Obviously, at the center of this is really being able to learn in different contexts and in different parts of the world. And you really make sure that you visit three different continents and all the countries are not on the same continent. So you're creating and helping to build a global mindset. But can you tell me, how do you define global mindset? What does that mean to you? You bet, Kinga. There's a lot of definitions of global mindset. It's been talked about in the academic and of course in the business world as well in trying to ensure people build this global mindset. My definition isn't something I came up with in my own for sure. In some ways I've simplified others views of it. I think about global mindset with four basic attributes and the order I think is fairly important. First of all, it's curiosity curiosity about something other than your own world, where you grew up, where you're going to school, that hunger for new insight. So curiosity is first, and then openness. It's not sufficient just to be curious, you also have to be open to understanding and learning about the other. Third, I would say reflection. That is, you've been curious about something, now you're open and learning about it. Now reflect and understand your own biases and how those may be evolving as you learn about other cultures. And the last one is adaptability. So you've been curious, you've been open, you reflected, and you've built a sense of how to adapt to multiple environments. So again, in some ways it's simpler than other models, but I like it because it's easy to remember. And in those four attributes, I think you have the power of what it can mean to have a global mindset. 
And of course, you're stepping right out of the textbook and into the world because the students are going into different countries and this is facilitated by their professors as they're learning from this experience. So we'll dig into that a lot more through our conversation. You've mentioned before that it's a comparative experiential type of learning. Can you tell me what that refers to? Absolutely. So let's take the second one first, because I think we're all familiar with experiential learning. There's experiential learning in grade school, middle school, high school, when people go for outdoor education, take field trips, that's experiential learning. And it is quite common in Canada, in the US, in many countries where we know students need that opportunity to get outside of the classroom and apply what they're learning to real environments. So that's the heart of experiential learning. And of course, our program takes students to eight to 10 countries per voyage and allows them to spend four to six days in each one of those countries. And that is the experiential component at the heart of it. The comparative piece is equally important in my mind because I fundamentally believe that we need people in the workforce who can adapt to multiple environments. Take a young adult who's 19, 20, 21 years old. They've grown up in a certain environment. We all build our own biases as a result of that environment. We come up with a fairly locked mindset. Then imagine getting on this ship, preparing for the first port. You go into that port. Your mindset and your biases are challenged. Something feels, tastes, smells, sounds different. And so what you thought was true isn't as true in this environment. Then you get back on that ship, you spend time learning and reflecting, and then you get in another country that's different from the first one and different from your own. And that comparative process necessitates changing how we really view the world and building what's called cognitive flexibility. That executive function that allows people to shift how they understand different contexts. So that's the comparative piece that's really executed through multiple experiential learning opportunities. Wonderful. So let's dig into what this program looks like because you know, you said that you're learning in the context and experiencing the learning, but what does this experience really look like to the student? Students will enroll in four or five courses. Those are college courses that are offered through our partner, Colorado State University, courses that can transfer back to their home institution. Mm-hmm. They get on the ship and they begin those courses. We, the ship is equipped with multiple classrooms. So they get the foundation of the courses. Then somewhere between six to eight days later, they will visit their first country. So they take that foundation from the class and they experience this country. Then they come back and they continue to learn in that classroom environment and then go into the next country. The faculty build into their syllabus this multi-country or this comparative experiential learning process so that students are prepared to go into a country and then are prepared to reflect on that experience. Wonderful. So they tie it to the material. Exactly. And what kind of courses can you take? Because, of course, some subjects lend themselves more easily to this than others. So we offer a wide variety of courses. 
Our limitations are in lab-based courses. We do not have a mechanical engineering lab. We don't have a biology lab. So students who are advanced in those degree programs would not be able to take those lab-based courses on our ship. Beyond that, it looks a lot like, uh, if you will, a small liberal arts school where you can have economics, history, art, oceanography, marketing, management. You can have a wide spectrum of courses and we offer them at the 100, 200, 300, and 400 level. So depending where you are in your degree, there's courses most likely available for you. Each voyage, we tend to offer between 65 to 75 different sections with 25 to 27 different faculty members with an average class size is about 23. And the faculty are university professors. Yeah, you got it. That's another wonderful part of this program is that we bring faculty from all over the U.S. and outside of the U.S. We've mm-hmm. had Canadian professors. We've had South African, German, Chinese, Japanese professors come in and be part of this cohort. That adds again to the diversity of that voyage environment. It's, it's really cool. Uh, we hire a new set of faculty for each voyage. So each cohort of faculty looks different from one voyage to another. In terms of the learning and these excursions that you do in the different countries, let's look at that a little bit. What are the students doing in each of the countries? They're not just going and visiting like a tourist. So what do they do? Yeah. So there's, in simple terms, three ways students experience each country. First of all, each course has one field class that it has to do on each voyage. That field class is an in-country full day experience. And I, after I go through the three ways they can experience, I'll give you an example of the field class, one of the field classes I did when I was a faculty member. Uh, Second, they can do field programs. Those are from half day, full day to three day experiences that we design with our partners, our in-country partners. And third, if they're not doing a field class or a field program, they can design their own experience in that country. So what does the field class look like? If I could use one of my own field classes as an illustration, I sailed as a faculty member on the spring 2017 voyage. I taught three courses. I taught international business, social entrepreneurship, and introduction to entrepreneurship. So my social entrepreneurship field class was the coolest thing I've ever done as a teacher. I framed the course around the global chocolate industry, which as you dive deeper in it, you get a real sense of supply chain, labor force, value add, of branding and merchandising, that whole element of what it takes to get the core ingredient from one country to a final chocolate bar at your local grocery store. So it's, it's a great industry to look at. So as we left San Diego, I laid the foundation for the course. We were approaching Japan. I said, hey, just go and look at how chocolate bars and other chocolate products are merchandised. Just have an eye for it. No requirement, nothing to come back with. I just love to hear your thoughts. What brands are there and so forth. Now, fast forward as we move through the voyage and we approached Ghana, the country where my field class is going to be, I started to explain that Ghana is the second largest provider of the cacao, Mm -hmm. the core ingredient in chocolate. And the conditions of the labor force there traditionally have been very poor. We're going to go visit a plantation that was organic certified and fair trade certified. 
and was working directly with a single source buyer called Tony's Chocolonely that was committed to really lifting up this community, purchasing at a fair price, not at a market price. So here we go. We get off the ship in Accra, Ghana, get on a bus, sweltering hot, two-hour bus ride out of Accra to a plantation. All the students get off the bus, welcomed by families. We're taken out to the cacao trees. The students are cutting down the cacao pods. They're breaking them open. They're taking the seeds out, taking the pulp away, seeing how the how the seeds are dried and then how it's ground into cacao powder and how those are then sent and shipped. And that is the power of this kind of learning. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Students yeah. today can connect chocolate in the store to source. And this was a social entrepreneurship class, wasn't it? Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it really does bring in a lot of those major issues in that course throughout the journey. What was the reaction that you got from students? Oh, they still talk about it. For years after, they would send me pictures of Tony Chocolonely bars that they bought in New York or in Houston. <laughs> they would talk about how they really do their due diligence when they're purchasing products, whether it's chocolate or any other product, mm. try to understand the full supply chain. So yeah, it definitely has a lasting impact. Um, what aspect of that do you think really stood out to them that wouldn't have in a normal class? Most profoundly is personal connection. When they are walking through the plantation and then sitting down next to the families that work there and see what happens to the welfare of that community when a buyer of their product is committed to their welfare. And how do they then take that logic and that empathy to their own work, connecting really to the global supply chain. It, you know, this is our world. We live within global supply chains. Right. And how do you take that with you? It's about that personal connection, that, that experience in person. That is really, really good. And in other countries, they go and connect it back to this course. That really does resonate. And I think it's easy to imagine how that would have a real impact, not just on the course itself, but on your life experience and really stepping into the world um, that you wouldn't have ever stepped into really, most likely. Is there a particular student that really stands out to you in their reaction and their, their impact? There's so many. I can talk about Sameh Bansal. He's of Indian descent, went to school in Singapore where his family lived, recently graduated from Cornell School of Hospitality, starting a job at McKinsey. He's extremely bright uh, young man. Even before getting onto the voyage, he'd started his own nonprofit called the Million Meals Mission. His goal is to make sure no one goes hungry. Uh, he's really committed to this work's local sourcing. And he was always such an um, intelligent and thoughtful voice in class. Social entrepreneurship was so natural to him. He balances that with the practical reality of you got to move a system to make change. You can't just go outside the system. Right. Um, and I think he saw that within our course and that field class in Ghana, that you got to be an active participant to bring change. And you mentioned that he came from different places in the world, so not from the U.S. So where do your students come from? Because they have to be able to take these credits from the classes and apply them back to their university. What countries and universities could people be applying from? So 
Generally, 80 to 85% of our students are U.S. passport holders. Then the remainder come from all over the world. There are always a number from China and India, from Germany, South Africa. Then, you know, individuals from other countries, we always get someone from Mexico and from Chile and Peru and Colombia. So then there's these ones, twos and threes and fours from these other countries. It's a wonderful learning environment. Clearly, we would like to increase the number of international students, and any student is welcome. There's a couple hurdles that they confront that are not necessarily the same hurdles a U.S. passport holder or even a Canadian passport holder would, would face. Number one is visas. Generally, a U.S. passport or a Canadian passport holder has a bit of an easier time or fewer visa requirements in the world. Other countries, you know, they, they may face more visa requirements. So it can just be more time consuming, more costly to get all those visas. The second one is that, as you know, the U.S. has a fall semester that starts in late August, goes to mid-December, then the second semester starts in January and goes till late May, right? Mm -hmm. There's many countries where that first semester really goes until mid to late January. Mm, so the timing is off in terms so the of the timing schooling. can be off. It works well for those students to go in the fall because they'll actually be back before their next semester starts. Mm -hmm. But it's very difficult for them to go in spring because they're basically away part of the first semester and part of the second semester. Mm. And in terms of aligning their classes uh, for the credit to be accepted by their university, is that something that you facilitate with? Is it quite easy for universities to accept it? Is that a hurdle for some? So it's for US students and anybody at a US institution, in practice, it should be very easy. But Colorado State University is an accredited institution. All the courses we offer have gone through their faculty governance process. Yeah. Our syllabus get re-reviewed by the chairs of those departments. So it goes through all the rigor to ensure the quality. And therefore those credits should transcript back to any institution. Nonetheless, I do advise any students that are interested to, to talk, talk to their academic advisor and or the study abroad office to make sure that they're gonna get the credits that they seek. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just thinking about this, I mean, when people are uh, to imagine what this looks like, it, it really, it looks like a cruise ship. It's quite a large ship. You said approximately 600 students are on this ship. And of course, the faculty and of course, all the staff, that experience must be absolutely, I mean, just such a fantastic time. I mean, anyone who's lived in a university dorm often thinks back to it with very fond memories. And this is just on a much bigger scale and bringing together a lot of new people from different parts of the country around the world. What is that experience like? It ends up being the best part of any voyage, the ship. So I think I, I already mentioned that about half the time is on the ship and half the time is in country. And it is a closed community on the ship, which is even more powerful than a dorm because you do leave it and you go off campus to a yeah. restaurant or go home, mm -hmm. whatever it is. This is your home and this is who you live with. And you live with the faculty and staff, uh, not in the same cabin, but right. <laughs> right? it's it's a closed community. Uh, and that ends up being the most 
powerful and most memorable part of anybody's voyage. Mm. They call it their first port. The community is extraordinary. Now, I will say this, the first couple of weeks, you see a little bit of strain because the internet is not as good as they're accustomed to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they're not streaming YouTube. They're not streaming their favorite channels. You just don't have access to that. Right. As a consequence, what ends up happening, Kinga, is people start pulling out board games and card oh, games, fantastic. things that we grew up with. And they do that the rest of the time on the voyage. And soon the, the need to connect instantaneously through TikTok or Snapchat dissipates and the connection is with that community. That is a very interesting element of this entire experience in our modern life that they don't have that cellular internet way of interacting. It's really going back to let's talk to each other and really just spend time doing, as you said, board games and different things like that. Wonderful. In terms of the faculty, this is not just an amazing experience for students. I can certainly imagine a lot of faculty thinking this would be a phenomenal experience, both in the way that you teach and teaching in a, in a different way, and also, of course, in the experience itself of visiting so many different places. What, what is the faculty's experience and what kind of feedback have you received? So I would say it, it's hard work. That's a very honest assessment because you are asked to develop a syllabus, well, three syllabuses that look different than what you're accustomed to. Right. And that just takes extra effort for those who haven't sailed before. It does really require you to rethink how you stack topics throughout a, a semester. How do you connect pieces? How do you integrate the field class? How do you integrate the whole voyage? So it, there's a challenge there for sure. And it is one of the best teaching experiences people ever encounter. We have a lot of people who have sailed more than once as faculty members. Oftentimes, each voyage has about 30% repeat faculty members who are signing up again because it was their favorite teaching experience ever. And I can speak for myself that I went on this experience thought, hands down, this is the best teaching experience I've ever had. And when a position came open at the Institute, I applied because I wanted to help further this mission. That's wonderful. And in addition to the syllabus being customized to the places that, that you visit and making sure that that's integrated into the course, what other kind of considerations does the faculty have in terms of changing the way they teach? Is there a different way, different methodologies that they use for teaching? Yeah, so I would say that in large part, the pedagogy can remain very similar. That is, degree to which they lecture, have discussion, use case studies, use video, right? What are the tools that they bring in and how do they really think about their own teaching style and how are students engaged in their own learning? So in large part, that can look very similar. What can oftentimes be different is that your students are engaged, not just in that class, but in the shipboard community. They're not just engaged in this class, but they're engaged in country experiences. They're not just engaged in your class, but they're talking to faculty outside of their own set courses. So because of that, the students' minds are shifting and changing I think more quickly than they do in a standard university environment. 
there's mm. more going on for them, more stresses, more neuroplasticity being forced. And so it's both a more open environment and perhaps like a more intense environment. Mm, right. So there's a lot for the faculty to adjust to throughout the term and throughout that journey. That's right. How do you prepare and support the faculty? Because I'm sure there's takeaways here that others who are not necessarily on a ship could maybe be inspired by. Yeah, so our academic affairs team works for months prior to a voyage, many, many months prior to a voyage with each faculty member, developing their syllabus and then working on their field class, making sure they understand the teaching environment. If you can go back to the hire date, so faculty are hired anywhere from 18 to 12 months prior to voyage. So upon hire, they start to work on their syllabuses. Those syllabuses are then molded around the voyage itinerary and submitted to the chair of the department at CSU for approval. Once they're back, then they start really dialing in their field class. How is this field class gonna work? And we have staff here who have lots of experience with the field class model. In fact, they will vary in the degree to which they have connections overseas. I was fortunate that I was able to use my own network to create the three field classes I had when I voiced, but other faculty member may not have those connections and we would assist them based on our own network. Do you think that there, have you ever heard stories about faculty, how they're impacted when they go back to their regular university teaching? Is there something that they integrate or change about the, the way they teach? You bet. One of my favorite faculty members is Dr. Ursula Quillman. She is a geoscientist who teaches oceanography. And she went on the spring 17 voyage, was a marine ecologist and geologist and oceanographer instructor. So if you think about her field, she wasn't necessarily what you might picture as an oceanographer who spent a lot of time on the ocean. She studied historical sediments, paleogeologists looking at sediments from old oceans. Okay, interesting. So this was really her first time sailing so much of the ocean in spring of 17. So we just heard from her recently talking about how she adjusted her course during the voyage where her classes would start or finish out on the deck looking at the ocean, looking at the colors, looking at the tidal patterns, uh, understanding swells, having your students really think about that. Even if it didn't fit exactly on the topic for that day, she would take them out there. And she said she learned so much. What was she paying attention to? And has brought that back to her own courses here. Obviously, she lives in Colorado. She can't take them to the ocean every day, but she can bring to life the ocean in a way that she wasn't too able to before. That's fantastic. What an interesting, what an interesting experience. And, uh, and for any faculty who is interested, then they would go to your website and it's an application process, isn't it? To, it is indeed. To go through that. And in terms of other experiences, I mean, I would just love to hear, I mean, you said you went to a cacao plantation. What other kind of experiences do students have? Maybe I'll talk about one other field class I did that was completely different, but also had a significant impact. And then I'll give you an example of alumni who, through his own experience and the kind of work he's doing as a result. 
a completely different field class. I taught an international business course along with social entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship. So in that international business class, I used the footwear industry as the lens, another global industry. And as we all know, uh, Western media over the last 25, 30 years has looked closely at the conditions of the labor force in overseas factories. And what I wanted the students to do is really understand that whole supply chain, because of course they're big consumers of different types of shoes, athletic shoes. So I took them to a contract manufacturer outside of Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. This shoe company or this, this contract manufacturer made shoes primarily for Adidas, but also for some of the other big brands. They got to walk through the entire factory. And here's the big takeaways. Number one, it's very safe. Number two, it's very clean. Number three, it's extremely monotonous. Number four, those people are thankful for their jobs. And those jobs help support their families. Number five, wow. So that shoe is made here with these machines, with that much labor, and then it ends up on the shelf at Dick's Sporting Goods or whatever your local sports shop is. I mean, the connectivity was really impactful. So there's only one way to bring that out in people is to have them see it and understand it. I'll tell you one other story, uh, which is one of my favorites, is about an individual named Sky Fitzgerald. He's sailed four times in a variety of roles. He is now a documentary filmmaker. Not too long ago, he completed a humanitarian trilogy. He talks about the impact of Semester at Sea and how it led him into that work because of two key things. One is true, inherent empathy for others that deep empathy for others. And second was the power of community. So those two things resonated so powerfully with him from the semester C experiences. Oh, that's very important. Yeah, he goes on to make this humanitarian trilogy. One focuses on Libya and the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean. Second, of course, the Syrian refugee crisis following a medical doctor. And third, is the Yemen conflict and the malnutrition facing children. Amazing humanitarian films. And the last two were nominated for Academy Awards. And I believe he's gotten, he's achieved the success because he's taken those two things that I said and really embedded it in his work. That is empathy, true empathy. So his films are conveyed through empathy and second, he really examines closely the power of community to try to address these crises. Really, really fascinating. And I imagine that this is an incredibly wonderful experience for everybody involved. And I think people can have a, a vision of what this would be like. But is there something that you think is less obvious about this experience, something that you would like people to know about the program? That's a wonderful question, Kinga. I would go back to something I mentioned earlier and explored a little further, and that is the ship environment. So when we market our program to prospective student voyagers, we put front-facing the itinerary, the countries that you get to visit. But hands down, over and over, the most powerful part of their voyage ends up being the time on the ship because it's so unique. 
from anything else someone's experienced in their life. And it's multi-generational, it's intimate, it's supportive and respectful and challenging and hard. And it's all of that over 105 days. It's reflective, it's transformative, it's all that packed into three and a half months. And the ship is that safe place where you can go back to and reflect and be with others who are going through similar experiences. It's difficult to say to someone who's thinking about going, hey, the best part of this is going to be your time on the ship. Because they're thinking, man, I'm so excited to see that country and that country and this one. But hands down, it is that ship experience that is not as obvious, but is the most impactful. Very good. Oh, that's fantastic. Because I would imagine, of course, as you when we talk, talk about community and reflection, I mean, sitting for breakfast, lunch and dinner, you're sitting with your classmates, your professors, you're discussing what you've been studying, you're reflecting back on your trip that you've all experienced together. So you have those moments that you wouldn't necessarily have in a normal environment where everybody goes home, they to their different communities. But here, the people that you're experiencing with and you're learning from and with are there for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And sitting around that table is such a powerful tool that is often overlooked, I think, in learning. That, that must be a wonderful experience, both for the students and for the faculty, because I'm sure they also learn a lot about how their students are thinking about the subject, don't they? Exactly. Yes. It's, it's a virtuous cycle, for yeah. sure. Oh, that's great. Well, it sounds absolutely like a fantastic program. And so if anybody's interested to apply, what is that application process like? Of course, the website semester at sea in the show notes, but tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, the application is really quite easy. It looks very similar to a college application in many ways is simpler. You hit the apply button, put in your name, your university, GPA, and so forth, and you get the application in. We actually have a single point of contact advisor who will work you through that process, make sure you get your application finished, answer any questions as you're exploring the itinerary and the courses and so forth. Then there's a variety of other steps we have to go through. Of course, we need a deposit as a commitment. And then you'll go into financial aid awarding, go into making sure you get visas if you need them. Then there's course registration. So there's all those stages. There's nothing that looks tremendously different than a university process, except, of course, if you need additional visas to go. Right. And, you know, in some cases, people do need to reach out to the study abroad office, or the academic advisor on their own campus make sure the connection's there and that they're going to get the credits that they're seeking back at their home institution. But we work very closely with those institutions and, and can help uh, in many ways with, that, with those conversations. It certainly is a process to prepare for this. So right now, if someone's thinking about it, what is, when is the next opportunity that they would actually be able to sail? How far out are we talking? Yeah, so we actually have a few vacancies for spring 22, which leaves in January. So if someone hears this and is interested now, let us know, because we have, we have some, some spots available. And then we already have the itineraries posted for fall 22 and for spring 23. So take a look. We're ready to work with you. Spring 22, where are you going? Do you know the ports? So, yeah, spring 22 is primarily Europe-based. That's where we're convinced it's most viable. The vaccination rates are high, the infection rates are low, and 
ports are close to each other. So, so this is changing the itinerary because of the pandemic to for safety reasons and yeah. So it, it's it's going to be a, an amazing voyage and still has the comparative peace. I mean, I think you're quite familiar with Europe yourself. Yes, it's such an incredibly diverse range of countries that you certainly can learn a lot from going from one to the other. Exactly. Yeah. And then in fall 22, we'll return to our more common itineraries, which at least include three continents. So we'll have Europe, the subcontinent, Asia, and going through the Suez Canal, which should be fabulous. Oh, fantastic. And so we'll get, we'll get back to those types of itineraries uh, in fall 22. But spring 22 is going to be amazing. There, they, no matter what happens, where we go, it is awesome. Well, I, I bet it is. I mean, that just sounds like an incredible lifetime experience. Really fantastic. Thank you for sharing it with us. And before we end, I like to ask every guest to share uh, something that they would recommend reading or watching, maybe on this topic or something that inspires you. I would suggest a couple things, just because these are where my passions lie, and I think they can be really fun and interesting. There's an old TEDx talk by Sylvia Earle, 2009, who is the grandmother of ocean conservation. And even some uh, TEDx that's 12 years old is wonderful to watch. Yes, definitely. And so if someone has time, you know, TEDx talks aren't that long. Pull up Sylvia Earle's 2009. Um, Really powerful. Second, I read books and themes. And last year I read a number of books about the ocean. And it's hard to recommend any one book. I can't remember the author's names, but there's one called The Wave. And the author goes chapter by chapter. One chapter is about how waves work. Hmm. And another one is about big wave surfers. Interesting. And then and there's a number of chapters that just re- go through this cycle. And you learn about how the ocean works. And ultimately, how these risk takers go and find the biggest wave. And it's a wonderful read because this author goes through uh, Susan Casey. Susan Casey is, is the author. That sounds really interesting. That sounds very interesting and very relevant to you to to have a more of an appreciation and understanding of the ocean as you're going through it. That sounds really good. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for sharing your experience and the program and talking more about it. This is a very unique learning experience. I'm really happy that you came and and shared it with me. So thank you very much. Kinga, thank you for the time. It was really fun.